Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Let's stay with the issue of COVID-19 and uh, what may be or may not, maybe shouldn't happen in this country. And back with us, as he is so often, is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, uh, infectious diseases specialist, Toronto General Hospital, University of Toronto. I always try to give you a weekend off. I feel guilty calling you all the time, Dr. Bogosh. <laughs> I don't like, have a life, so it's, you know, I, don't know. Chat I called you at 7.30 this morning, and he's, he's I've been up for hours. <laughs> Look, these numbers that we're seeing right now, there's the numbers that are surging nationally, and provinces are responding. Where are we right now as far as a national health crisis is concerned? We're, we're in a tough spot, and we're in trouble in many places. Um, I think we're going to start to see things stabilize and maybe even improve in some of the places that are taking it seriously. Uh, you know, certainly we've seen Ontario, for example, yesterday uh, significantly recalibrate their approach. Good move. We've seen Quebec take a very serious approach. Good move. Um, Manitoba, for example, has just implemented some pretty serious measures to get this under control. And of course, the Atlantic bubble is doing fantastic. But, uh, and, you know, there's a few other provinces doing a few other things. But essentially, uh, it looks like people are slowly coming on board. When our healthcare system is starting to get stretched beyond capacity, we're in deep trouble and it's pretty late to start acting. But as that old saying goes, it's never too late to turn around when you're going down the wrong path. Uh, should the federal government, here's something that's been discussed, and I know you've been asked about this, should the federal government, the Trudeau government, exercise constitutional or legal powers they have and declare it is taking over the direction of health care nationally? Now, we know there's been pushback. Uh, Premier Ford of Ontario has said, essentially, that is not going to happen on my watch. Premier Moore of Saskatchewan has pushed back, and I'll find out tomorrow what Premier Kenny uh, thinks about that when he joins us. But what's your thinking on that, Dr. Bogosh? Well, my personal opinion is that it's probably a mistake. I mean, the federal government has the capacity to do what the federal government does. It's the provinces that really administer health care. And you, can you imagine a situation where the federal government says, okay, we're done here, uh, we're taking control, and the provinces say, fine, fine, take control. You, you deal with health care in our province. Then what? The federal government doesn't have the capacity to do that. They don't have the human power or the skill set to micromanage a provincial health care uh, system. Uh, so, you know, I certainly think that, like, I think if the question should be asked, you know, do we need a more coordinated response across the country? Absolutely. Is the federal government taking control of provincial health care uh, the way to do it? No, I don't think that's the way to do it. But you know what? I, I, I certainly know that there's others that disagree with me on that, and that's fine. But that's that's where I stand. Okay, I want to ask you about vaccines. And uh, later on in the show, we're going to be speaking with uh, Oxford University professor uh, Melinda Mills is going to be joining us. She was the leader of a report just released in the UK, and British scientists who say an 80% uptake of COVID-19 vaccine may be necessary to protect communities from the coronavirus. But there's 36% of people in Britain who are, according to the study survey, saying they are uncertain, either uncertain or unlikely to agree to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Those numbers are fairly similar in Canada. By the way, Professor Melinda Mills will be joining us as originally from Red Deer, Alberta. Um, so where are we as far as vaccine preparedness is concerned? And what do you think has to happen 
to engage people positively, those who have questions about, those who doubt vaccines, what do you have to do? Well, I think that 80% might be a little bit high. It might be a little bit high. Now, um, certainly we've seen estimates of 60 to 80% uh, uptake for the vaccine to really help herd immunity. And of course, we want herd immunity, but that's not the be-all, end-all. We also want to protect everyone in long-term care and, and seniors and people at risk. And yeah, the goal is to get enough people vaccinated. Having said that, uh, vaccines are going to roll out. We don't know which ones are going to be successful, but there are going to be successful ones. There will be vaccine programs rolling out in 2021. The time to start desensitizing people to this is yesterday. And it is certainly time to say, here's what's happening. Here's what's coming through the pipeline. Here's what you can expect. Here's the potential side effects you can expect with the first wave. Here's what we know about them. And I would just blast this on the airwaves and on TV and on social media in an age, language, and culturally appropriate manner so that every every one of the 38 million of us hears it over and over and over so that when they are available, there's no surprises. So um, how ready how ready are we how are we how ready is our is our system to properly distribute vaccines or effectively distribute vaccines vaccines to the national population? Yeah, I think we're I, th- I don't think like today we could do it, but I think by the time they roll around, I suspect we'll be in much better shape. We've seen movement from the federal government getting prepared to move minus 80 degrees uh uh, product around the country. And we know that this vaccine has to be stored at minus 80 degrees. It can be stored at a, a I was going to say a warmer temperature, like, uh, you know, a refrigerated temperature for about five days as well, uh, once it's thawed. But of course, minus 80 degrees freezers uh, exist. They're just not that common. And, uh, and it will take some, there are certainly logistical hurdles to get this around the country. There certainly are. Uh, but but I, it's clear that they're taking steps to facilitate this right away. That's a great move. Uh, some vaccines won't require that, but it looks like the earlier ones will. I, I also think, though, at the end of the day, you know, the rate limiting step is to create a successful and safe vaccine for an infection that we didn't even know existed 11 months ago, not to keep it cold and move it around the country. Like, we can do that. We can do that. Yeah, there'll be logistical hurdles, but we can do that. So are you relatively confident that there will be a vaccine before summer of 2021? Oh, uh, yeah, I am. I am. I, you know, obviously, listen, we've been talking about this for months. I really, truly believe that somewhere on the planet, vaccines may be going in arms at the end of 2020. And in Canada, I would not be surprised if we see them rolling out in the first quarter of 2021. I really and it's going to be in a staged manner like it'll be, you know, long term care facilities and frontline health care workers and people at risk of more severe illness first. But like, I, I don't think it's outlandish to think tw- the first quarter of 2021 will, we'll, we'll probably see it then. And actually there's programs in other parts of the world that are running. I mean, we don't have the results of phase three clinical trials, but like there's programs in the United Arab Emirates and uh, other parts of the world where they're sort of conducting countrywide trials where huge swaths of the population are getting vaccinated. So like, it's sort of already starting we just don't talk about it. And then the phase three clinical trial results will be out. We'll go through independent government bodies. And I think we'll see programs spring up very, very quickly. So so I'm going to ask you to wear two hats simultaneously here. How do you balance the need to keep an economy going and fighting the virus? Because 
we know, and it's been said, and you and I have talked about this on the air, and I've talked to a mental health specialist as well, that maybe the next pandemic we're going to see to follow the coronavirus will be a mental health uh, issues pandemic. So how do you balance the need to keep an economy, economy going and fighting the virus? From your perspective, well, you're an infectious disease specialist, but for the, for the moment, yeah. I'm also assigning you the role of economist. Well, I feel like a poor amateur economist because I'm not one, but I certainly talk to them all the time and also with business people. So I'm just going to name drop. Pardon me. I'm not trying to be snobby, but like I've been discussing, uh, I have this ongoing fantastic discussion with uh, Goldie Hyder, who's the chair of the president of the Business Council of Canada. We've written articles together in the National Post about how damaging lockdowns can be, not just to the economy, but also uh, for the mental health of a population and how we should do everything we can to avoid it. Having said that, having said that, if cases are so high and case not, and, and you just aren't controlling the virus, your options of controlling the virus become fewer and fewer and fewer. And of course, the lockdown is the last, last card you have. It's the card you hold closest to your chest and you only play that card if you absolutely need to. But, uh, you know, I, I, I honestly don't have a crystal ball. I don't. But I do think that it, you know, if, if need be, they'll play that card if they absolutely have to. If the healthcare system is at risk of being stretched beyond capacity, I, I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised if they have some form of a modified lockdown. I just don't know. If, I hope we can stick handle around that. I hope we can avoid that, as everyone does. But, yeah. you know, some people are pretty quick to say, oh, lock it all down. I don't, I don't fall into that camp. I don't. I think we should try stick handle around this as, as deftly as we can, which is going to be challenging, and we can get into the nuances of how to do that. But uh, a lockdown, I think, obviously should be avoided at all costs. Can you stay with us a few minutes longer? 100%. Because I'd like to ask you how to stick handle around that. Okay. And, and I also heard, and I want to ask you about this, I also heard and read, and read just this morning, that other microbes uh, are causing problems, are threatening, like measles. So we have more than one thing going on, and I was didn't know whether I should raise that with you or not, but I do want to, because there are vaccines for, for measles, are there not? Yes, of course. But Been around for a few years? Right. Measles vaccines have been around forever and they're very yeah. successful. But yeah. globally, we are seeing uh, the, where there's a certain all these big programs to keep measles and polio and tuberculosis and HIV at bay. All these programs have been um, significantly impacted because of COVID-19. So just like you said, there's going to be a, a, a huge rash of mental health issues that, that arise from this. There will also be uh, and infectious disease outbreaks, for sure, of preventable infectious diseases, which is which is tragic, and and it's it's obviously tough to watch. But uh, you know, I'm, here's my political thing. I know people hate that. You know, everyone says stay in your lane, but here's my one political statement. Some people were really upset with the WHO, uh, and you know, some of that criticism I think is very fair. I think some of the criticism is a little bit overblown. But the WHO does some incredible work globally by keeping polio, measles, rubella, HIV, tuberculosis, etc. at bay. They also have uh, food programs for many parts of the developing world. Like there's so many good things that they do that just go unnoticed. And they, they need funding. They need money to keep that. That's keeping billions of people healthy and well. And uh, really, we, I mean, they, they are so essential to the world. And, and, and it's invisible to many of us in Canada. I get it. But like... 
know, yeah, but still, obviously, hold people accountable, and, and, and we should be transparent about what was right and what went wrong. But, like, these yeah. programs, nutritional programs, infection programs, and counseling programs, these are, these are incredibly helpful. To, you know, you can ne- measure the number of people in the billions that benefit. You, want to, you say there's a way to stick handle around um, a lockdown, so let me handle, hand you the stick. Okay. What do we do? So, a couple of things. First off, obviously, we, we, it has to go without saying. Lockdowns are terrible. We know that. Everyone gets that in the medical and scientific community and the lay public. Psychological harm, economic harm, uh, health harm because of canceled surgeries and all that jazz. Everyone gets it. So we're all starting on the same page. The second thing is, you know what? If your healthcare system is at risk of being overrun, that's the last card you got to play. And sadly, you, you, you need to do it. Uh, but, but we ought, want to avoid that at all costs. The third point is, if you're pre-lockdown, you, maybe there's a way to navigate around this. And, and one of those ways is to really take a step back and fundamentally evaluate every aspect of your pandemic response. And there's sort of a pillar of an ep- each pillar of an epidemic response. So let me give you an example. Pillar one is your um, understanding of what's driving infection in the community. Is it in restaurants and bars? Is it in gyms? Is it in houses of worship? Is it in vital sectors of the economy? Is it in private gatherings? Until you take care of these upstream effects, until you mitigate those upstream effects, you're all, everything is everything is secondary. And then the second, so you've got to really figure out where this is going so you can create sound policy. And, and some places know and some places don't. For example, British Columbia knows. They said, we're not going to close restaurants uh, down. We're going to modify bars. Uh, and, and, and make restaurants safer, but they're not closed because the outbreak is being amplified in people's homes. So you can go to a restaurant, you can sit at a table, but you have to be within your family. Okay. So I, I like, that's a very data driven approach. They have the evidence to help drive that, that approach. Let's, I hope it works, but let's, let's see. The second thing is you have to reevaluate your diagnostic strategies and your screening strategies and your surveillance strategies. That's your diagnostic pillar. You've got to reevaluate uh, and, and bolster your test, your uh, your uh, contact tracing. Even if there's a lot of cases, you've got to be doing a significant number of contact tracing and have a good understanding of uh, who is exposed and then supporting people. It's not just saying isolate. It's supporting people through a 14-day period of isolation. Not everyone has the means to do this or the will to do this uh, or the capacity to do this. So it's supporting yeah. people through a 14-day period of isolation. And I have about, so, I have, I'm sorry, I have about 20 seconds left, so please go ahead. Basically, reevaluating every pillar. The two things that are often missed, community engagement and communication. And age, language, and culturally appropriate communication is vital, and community engagement is vital. Those are the pillars. If you reevaluate and bolster them, you'll do okay. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.